And this is the last week of our series called Level Up, and Level Up is all about just going to that next level in your faith. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you are in your faith journey, everybody has a next level that they can go to. Even if they're not sure who Jesus is, that's their next level, is figure out who is Jesus, what is this whole faith thing about. For those of us, uh, maybe it's just being here consistently. Uh, we, we're kind of here periodically, and our next level is, all right, I'm dedicating to be here every weekend, or it's getting involved in Rooted, it's serving, it's giving, it's whatever it may be. Everybody has that next level that they can go to. And so that's what we've been talking about as we go through the book um, Acts. And if you don't know what the book of Acts is, it's a book in the Bible that's right after the Gospels. So the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are the stories of Jesus' life. And then this is the beginning of the church. We see that after Jesus dies, resurrects, and ascends into heaven, that this whole movement called the church begins. And it starts with about 120 people, and then automatically, like day one, goes to thousands within a few uh, days and weeks and months. It becomes thousands and thousands of people. And we've been following along that journey through the first five chapters. And so today, we're going to be looking at chapter 6 in Acts. And so if you have your Bibles, open them up, Acts 6, uh, starting at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible or Bible app, you can follow along on the screens. Okay, so here's, uh, here's what happened. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. Now, I'm sure that you, uh, you're pretty aware of uh, first century cultural Judaism and kind of what was going on there, right? Okay, I'll, re I'll remind you. I'll remind you. I'll refresher. So here's the difference between the two is you've got the Hebraic Jews and you've got the Hellenistic Jews. And the Hebraic Jews are those who, um, they're both Jewish culturally, uh, or both Jewish uh, religiously and ethnically, but the difference is cultural. And so Hebraic Jews, um, they lived in either Judea or in the city of Jerusalem. They had a very uh, Jewish outlook. They spoke the Semitic languages. And the Hellenistic Jews, those are the people who lived among the Gentiles. And most of them spoke, or uh, all of them spoke Greek. And, uh, and they had a very Greek outlook on the world. And so you had these two very different um, cultural uh, cultures coming together in one place. And the reason why they were there in the city is because, we learned in the first few chapters, there was this thing called Passover that was taking place. And so all the Jews would come into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And we also have uh, a bunch of elderly people who are coming in um, from, uh, from living outside of Judea who they wanted to be buried in the city so they would come and live their last years of life there so that they could be buried uh, in Jerusalem. And so you have these two very different Jewish cultures coming together, and then all of them, because of Peter getting up and he does this big speech, and we, we kind of worked through those last few weeks, he gives this speech about Jesus, and then these thousands of people believe, and so they stick around for this beginning of this church movement. And so as they're hanging out, they decide that they're going to live communally. They're sharing everything. They're sharing their food and their money and their homes, all their resources. And so two cultures coming together and living in tight quarters. You know that there's going to be conflict there. If you've ever had a roommate before, if you've ever had a sibling that you had to room with, if you are married and living with your spouse, there's tension right? It doesn't matter how much you love them. It doesn't matter how much you care for them. When two people live in close proximity, it gets, it gets hairy sometimes, right? I had a roommate um, in college. I moved into the dorms when I was a freshman, and I lived there for a few years, and, and um, I had different roommates, but there was one roommate who, he was quirky, but I really liked him. It was really fun. We ended up rooming together for a while, and uh, every time I think of him, I think of this story, and I, I've shared this years ago, is on Friday nights, I would go home, and I would uh, do my laundry, 
okay, I drop my laundry off for my, my parents to do it, and, uh, and I get some food, and I would stay there over the weekend, and I would head back to school on Sunday night. In this one weekend, I decided not to go home. I was going to stay in the dorms, but I didn't tell him, and he didn't know, and so I was coming home at night, and I'm opening up the door, and I hear a thud, and then I see him jumping into bed. Very strange, and so I look at him. And I go, hey, bro, were you just lifting weights? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night. Yeah, I was just lifting weights. I look at it and I go, were you lifting weights in front of the mirror? Yeah, yeah, lifting weights in front of the mirror. You're naked, aren't you? Yep, definitely naked. Definitely naked lifting weights in front of the mirror. I go, all right, this is why I don't stay here on Friday nights. I'm out of here. Because <laughs> it's weird, right? When you're living with somebody, there is tension. And so that's exactly what's happening here. There's going to be some conflict. Now, if I could gift uh, young adults, young married couples, pretty much anybody who uh, walks through the doors of Seacoast, one of the gifts that I would give them is the ability to resolve conflict in a healthy way. I I wish that I could um, just... I, could, I wish I could just give that tool to people and say, here you go, because that is one of the things that um, really determines a lot of your relational, spiritual, and emotional health. And if we're going to be honest, so many of us are so bad at conflict. We're just not good at it. I don't know if it's because we didn't see it growing up, if it has to do with our natural disposition, if what it is, but we're really, really bad at conflict. And so there's a, uh, it reminds me of a story that I heard last year where there's a group of young adults and millennials, I hate to pick on us, but um, we're, I think, especially bad at this because um, one of the things that we do is we like to avoid conflict. And so there was a group of uh, young adults and they're meeting in a small group and doing life together. And there was a little bit of conflict in the group. Okay, that's going to happen. And so the next group meeting, they sat down and the leader brought it up and said, hey, we need to discuss this issue. And the first person to talk said, actually, I think we should start a group text message and we can talk about it there. <laughs> what? No, <laughs> we're, we're right here. Let's talk about this because we don't like conflict. It makes us feel uncomfortable. And so I think of people on kind of a, a spectrum, a conflict spectrum, uh, and this is totally made up. I made this up. Is it's the blow up or the show up, and you're somewhere on that spectrum. And so what I mean by this is you're either on the blow up side, which is you love conflict, you love, love uh, confrontation, you love to be argumentative, and you're going to pretty much argue about any and everything. And in, a worst, uh, in its worst form, you blow up, you get angry, you start throwing stuff. That's the blow up. And then there's the other side of the spectrum which is the won't show up. And the won't show up people are, I'm going to avoid conflict at all costs. I might not emotionally show up. And so you have these people, maybe you are this person where there's a conflict and you just go, yeah, okay, sure. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, whatever you need. That's fine. Where do do you want to eat? Great. That's great. Let's eat there. Yeah. Okay. And, And you just don't want to engage. You want to ignore it, pretend like there's not a problem. Or here's my favorite one is you physically will not show up. And so there's even a term for this. And, uh, and if you're a little bit younger, maybe you know this term. I just learned it. It's called getting ghosted. Okay, so you've heard of this before. This is what getting ghosted is, and it usually refers to a romantic relationship where um, you're dating somebody and they want to break up with you, but they never tell you that you're going to break up. They just disappear like a ghost. They won't answer your phone calls, text messages. They're just gone. And it's because it's too uncomfortable to have to have that kind of conflict. And so both, I think, are pretty uh, clear examples of uh, unhealthy conflict. I want to see if we can learn from how they dealt with their conflict. Here's what it says. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution 
of food. And so the, the widows who were from out of town were not getting taken care of. This is a legit complaint. I can understand why this would cause some tension. These poor ladies aren't getting the food that they need. And when I read this, my initial thought, it's a little bit selfish as a pastor, is I love this story. <laughs> because there's no perfect church. They're a mess, right? I look at this, I think, you're not going to get better leaders than them. You're not going to get better theologians. They wrote the Bible. You're not going to get anybody closer to Jesus. They hung out with Jesus. They're genuine people. They died for their faith. And yet it is still messy. There's still conflict. Which I think the takeaway for us is pretty clear. Lower your expectations around here, okay? <laughs> Lower your expectations. All right, here's what they said. In, in, amen, okay. Let's just pray and get out of here. Um, all right, it continues on. It says, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together. So the 12 are the apostles. Those are the people that actually hung out with Jesus, kind of like, like Peter and John. And then the disciples is anybody who became a believer in Jesus. And so at this point, there's, there's, there's tons of them. And the first thing that they did to resolve the dispute is they got face to face. They got face to face. They said, okay, we've got a problem. There's conflict. There's tension. And so the immediate thing that we need to do is we need to sit down and we need to talk about this. I was out to lunch or at coffee with a friend of mine this week, and, and um, as we're having coffee, <clears throat> I was not intentionally, but I most definitely was listening to the conversation next to us. And as I'm listening to them talk, and I'm not even hearing my friend saying, I'm just like, this is good. <laughs> okay, like, you, are you hearing this? This is crazy. Uh, and, and it's two young ladies, and one of them is, is very upset with another one of their friends, and like, oh, girl, you wouldn't believe this, and oh, she didn't stay out of my business, and I'm like, yeah, what's what? And so... And as I'm listening to this, I, 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 I want to turn to, to, the, to the young lady and say, hey, that's not who you need to be having coffee with. The person you need to be having coffee with ain't here. You're talking about them. Why don't you go find them? Because this is not going to help. This will resolve nothing. And by the way, Jesus loves you. Come to Seacoast Grace. We'd love to have you. Okay, but this is not helping. And so the first thing to do is they get face-to-face. -face. They don't start talking to other people about it. They don't uh, give a review online. They don't send a mean text message or anonymous note or whatever. They, they, they face each other and say, okay, we've got a problem here. I think uh, one of the observations in this story, and it applies to all different types of conflict, is the issue isn't always the issue. The issue isn't always the issue. And so um, sometimes when we're in conflict, we think that this is what the issue is, but it's actually something far deeper than that that there's something else going on, that this might be the thing that we focused on, this may be the, the trigger, this may be the flashpoint, but there is something deeper that is happening. And so if we look at the background of this story, it is, it is true here, is there was a tension between the two groups, but it, it was beyond just the, uh, the, the structure of who's going to feed the widows. There was a cultural tension there is the Hellenistic Jews were the people who lived outside the city who spoke Greek, and the Hebraic ones, they saw them as less than. You guys are kind of second-class Jews. And so there was clearly an underlying problem there. Now, I don't think that they intentionally neglected these women, but I think that uh, it was going through the, the Hellenistic Jews' minds that, you know what, we already know that you don't like us. We already understand that there's a tension there, and here is the evidence. And so they begin to focus in on this problem. Now, one of, the, uh, <clears throat> one of the things I've learned as I've been married for, for 10 years now is, um, one, I'm not that bright relationally. Like, I miss a lot of cues. Like, the, like I, I say things and I don't think they're offensive, but clearly they are very offensive. The tears are proof, you know, or, 
or I, I, I don't understand why people are upset. And so one of the things I've learned early on was um, if, let's just say, um, this would never happen, but let's say I forgot to take out the trash, okay? Let's just say, I, it, it's never happened, but let's say I forgot to take out the trash, and my wife comes down and she sees that I haven't taken out the trash, and she looks at me and she just begins to cry. You know what an inappropriate response would be? Um, get over it. Like, you're such a drama queen. I'll take it out. It's just trash. That would not go over well because I have learned that me not taking out the trash is not the real reason why she's upset. It took me a while, but I figured it out. There is something deeper happening here. She is upset about something else, and this happens to be the thing that set her off. I see this all the time in ministry, and you've probably seen this too in your world, is I see people who are reacting to something. They're upset, they're angry, and when I look at their reaction and I look at the thing that they're upset about, I go, well, those things don't match. The reaction is far more extreme than, than deserved in this situation. And oftentimes it's because there's something else going on. There's something going on in their world. There's an event that has happened within their life that I don't know about or maybe has nothing to do with me, has nothing to do with the ministry involved in or whatever. There's just something. And then you happen to be there the day that, uh, that they blew up. And so what we have to do is we have to look past the surface and figure out what is really the core issue here. What's really going on? What is the thing that really needs addressed? Because if we simply address the thing that we believe is the issue, the thing on the surface, um, then we're never going to truly resolve the conflict. And let me give you a, uh, a really graphic and gross illustration to help you remember this. And this is perfect for right before lunch. Um, there is a YouTube sensation called Dr. Pimple Popper. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. I love these videos. I watch them to help me relax. I don't know. There's something wrong with me. I watch them before bed. And as you can imagine, if you've never seen Dr. Pimple Popper, one, look at it later. Awesome. Uh, two, you can kind of figure out what she does. Uh, she takes care of cysts and whiteheads and blackheads. And I have seen so many of these videos, I am halfway to becoming a dermatologist at this point. <laughs> and here is what I have learned as I have watched Dr. Pimple Popper. And again, this is gross. This is graphic, but this will help you remember is... If she just simply addresses whatever the issue is on the surface, it's not going to fix it. She's got to get to the core. She's got to dig in there. She's got to clean that thing out. She's got to make sure she gets all the gunk out of there because if she doesn't, that thing is never going to heal. In fact, it's going to come back worse than it was before. And so she gets in there, man, and she just cleans that thing. I see some of you guys just, oh, oh God, oh. You may describe it, what it looks like, the color. No, okay. It's because you got to address what's at the core if you ever truly want to find that, that resolution, that healing. And so sometimes it, it really it makes us start to admit some things about us that makes us really uncomfortable. Like, hey, I think the issue is I've got some, some anger issues. I've got some fear. I've got some codependency. I've got some unresolved family of origin stuff and oh, that's really why I'm reacting like this. It takes a lot of vulnerability. It takes a lot of maturity. And I, I give a shout out to our, one of our ministries, CR, because this is one of the things that they do best is they start, oh, all right, some CR folks, good. Is they start to get in there. They, start, they do things like step studies and they do open shares and they do, because they, they realize that there's, there's probably some bigger stuff than what is happening on the surface. There's some stuff at the core that I need to address. So it continues on. Uh, the 12 gathered, all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. 
Now, I did not see this coming. This was not the response that I expected. They bring, hey, our widows aren't being fed, and their response was, you want us to wait on tables? You think I got time for that? No. I'm out here. I got to preach the word, brother. I got things to do. Now, I would imagine a church meeting going like this and them just, just losing it. What, you think you're too good to wait on tables because you're an apostle? Do you not remember Jesus washing your feet, saying that you got to serve people and you're too good to wait on tables? Of course, that's not what's happening here. They, they just have a different solution. They say, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. See, they, they very much understood that these women needed to be taken care of. But they also understood a few other things. One, that they can't do everything. There's a lot of good things that you can do, but there's only a few things that you can do really well. And so they said, you know, we can't, we, we can't do all of this. We've got a job to do, and if we neglect our job, everything that gets done is just going to be mediocre. And so some of us, we've got to remember this, right? Is we are trying to do everything all the time. And you know what happens? You melt down. Things fall through the cracks. We're running our kids around, and we're trying to be all this, and we're trying to impress other people, and it's like, whoa, slow down. You can't do everything. Pick a few things and do them really well. They also understood that they got to keep the main thing the main thing. As the apostles, I believe, saw the big picture of the church and where it was supposed to go and how it was going to get there, and, and they realized that in its simplest form, the world is going to change, or the, the church is going to change the world in two ways, through the words that they speak and the works that they do. The word is the preaching of the gospel, that Jesus has come to save them, to reconcile them, and so they need to go out and they need to share that, but also that has to be partnered with the work that they do of serving the poor and healing those who are sick and comforting those who are mourning, and so they said, look, we have to fight the temptation and distraction to go and do some things that are really good in order to do some things that are great, and so we have to focus in on the main thing. Our calling is to go and to preach the word. And so the apostles, um, because they knew they needed to stay in their lane, not only was it good for them, but it was good for everybody else. They were able to use their giftedness and their calling and able to fulfill that, but they were also able to free up other people to use theirs as well. We will see that um, some of the people who, who, who kind of step up in leadership here and take care of this problem, that they're going to become leaders within the church and so this, this gave people an opportunity to serve. And if the disciples ran around doing everything, or the apostles ran around doing everything, they wouldn't have ever had the opportunity. And they also understood the, the necessity and centrality of preaching the gospel because the way that salvation comes into people's lives is by, by hearing the word. It first comes through hearing. And so they knew if this gospel message is going to move forward, we cannot stop preaching this word to people. In fact, the, the way that um, people are going to be helped physically is by transformation spiritually. And so we have to keep this thing going out, keep it moving forward, because this is the motivation. This is the fuel for change in the world. So here's the group's reaction. Verse 5, it says this, This proposal pleased the whole group. God, wouldn't it be great if all of our conflicts ended like this? And she was happy. <laughs> right? That it doesn't always happen. Now, sometimes everybody walks away, and everybody's cool, and everybody's great. Um, but that's, that's, we can't expect that to happen every time. But here's what we can strive for, is we can strive to resolve our conflict by fighting to be reconciled, not right. We can fight to be reconciled, not just to be right. Oftentimes, if you're like me, I will fight to be right. 
I want to make sure you understand I am right, you are wrong, and I hope you cry about it. <laughs> and yet that never, never results in, in, in being unified. And so if you are going to be reconciled, if you are going to be unified, you can't simply fight to be right. There's an old saying, it is, uh, you, can't, you can be right or you can be married. And, uh, and this is, man, this is true. When I was a newlywed, my dad pulled me aside because he saw, as Amy and I were trying to figure out how to argue, because arguing's good, conflict is good if you do it in the right way. And so he's watching us, and he pulls me aside and he goes, Cody, um, you love to argue. Your wife hates to argue. You like to just get in there and have confrontation, and she hates that. And so what's happening is every time you argue, you may win that argument just because you like it and you're better at it. But you know what's going to happen? You're going to win all of those little battles, but you're going to lose the war of your marriage. You've got to learn how to do conflict where you both walk away feeling heard, where you both walk away feeling like you had a say in the solution, because the win is not to be right. The win is to be reconciled in your marriage. And so here's what they did. Uh, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, and then they chose a bunch of other people with Greek names that I can't pronounce, uh, and they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. And so their solution was this, is look, we're going to go find some Hellenistic Jews who can serve and represent this community. We're going to give them the responsibility, the freedom to lead so that we can continue to do what we do and they can do what they do. I want to make sure we don't miss the big picture of this story is I think the whole thing can really be summarized with one word. The problem, the solution, everything can be summarized in this. Ownership. Ownership. This whole story really boils down to ownership. I do premarital counseling periodically, and one of the things that I make sure I discuss and I, I focus in on is this thing called agreed-upon expectations. Agreed-upon expectations is have we talked about this and agreed that someone is going to own this thing? And we will get into this, the most minute details about their marriage. So we'll start off with big things like, all right, budget. You both got to be in on the budget. It's an all plea. You got to decide where the money's going to go, all the kind of stuff. But one of you guys can manage it from day to day, making sure it's going to the right places. So who's going to own that? Okay, you're going to own that. Great. Um, wife, you're going to own this. Husband, you're going to own this. Here's well, when we go down the line. We will get to the most ridiculous details, like who's going to take out the trash? I've heard that that's a big deal. Who's going to take out the trash? Okay, who's going to turn out the lights? Who's going to lock the doors? Who's going to boom? And then you own that, you own that, you own that. Because I've realized that many of the conflicts that I've had is over a lack of ownership. Nobody owned it. Somebody assumed you've got it, and I assumed you've got it, and now we're arguing over it because it didn't get done. I've shared this uh, a bunch of times before is when Amy and I first got married and her family, her dad, would be the one to lock up and turn out the lights and take out the trash. And in my family, it was my mom who did that. And so for, you know, the beginning of our marriage, we had a very well-lit and stinky house because I would assume she's going to do it. And she's like, you know, because we didn't agree to it. We didn't, we didn't own it. And so if you look at the problem here, the problem is that nobody owned taking care of the widows. They didn't do this intentionally. It wasn't because they had some vendetta against these people. It's just that nobody owned it. Nobody said, I'm going to take care of that. And the apostles could have easily said, you know what? Why is this my responsibility? I'm busy. I've got things to do. You have two hands. Why don't you go and take care of this? But that's not the response. The response was, we're leaders, and it's our responsibility. We will own this. It was not intentional. We did not do this on purpose, but this is, this is our church. This is our family. This is my business. And so I will take ownership 
of things that have fallen through the cracks, things that have not gone well, because I've got to lead. I'm going to own it. The apostles owned their part, but then the disciples ended up owning theirs as well. So they could have easily said, that's right, you should have fixed this, you should have seen this, you should have known better. They didn't do that, though. Instead, they said, okay, we're going to own it, too. You owned it, and we're going to own it, because church is an all-play. Everybody's got to own something. And so we will own the responsibility from here on out to take care of these women. Because just like a family, there are tons of different roles. There's a mom and a dad, and there's kids and grandparents and aunts and uncles, and everybody has to own that role in the family if it's going to work well. Same thing in the church. So the question I think that is pretty natural that arises out of this is, what do I need to own? What is it that I need to own in my life? So we're trying to teach our kids the value of responsibility and ownership, and it's, it's a struggle <laughs> because uh, we're, just, we're starting with the simple stuff, like their toys, right? They play with all their toys all the time all over the house and leave them there. And so it just drives us crazy. There's always toys everywhere. And so one of the rules that I've implemented is um, either it gets put away or it gets thrown away. Right? So when you're done with your toys, if you go to bed and these toys are left out, guess what's going to happen? They're going to be gone in the morning because I'm going to throw them away. And they didn't actually get as motivated as I thought they would, which was disappointing. And so I added like an extra element in there. I said, but first, before I throw them away, I'm going to give your sibling the opportunity to take it from you. And then they get to own it and keep it in the room and you never get to play with it, even if they're playing with it. Right? So that added like a little bit, you know, it was good. <laughs> it helped, but still not there yet. It's because I want them to own it. I want them to own their stuff, not just physically, but I want them to own their responsibilities, their actions, their attitudes. This is true of our relationships. Growing up, my sister and I, we would, uh, <clears throat> we'd be in some kind of argument, usually my sister acting like a crazy person, and <laughs> our parents would sit us down, and they would say, okay, Cody, what did you do? What do you need to own in this? And I would say something like, you know what? I'm over here trying to serve the Lord, okay? Um... <laughs> I'm trying to be righteous in what I do. And then your daughter comes along. I don't know what's wrong with her. You should have her checked out because there is something wrong. And they would always stop me and say, Cody, what do you need to own in this? I don't, you, her, she is not your responsibility. Her, she is not your concern. What do you need to own in this? And I would just, oh, no, but I want to tell you what she did wrong. And they would never let me. They would always say, no, I don't care. Right or wrong, I just want to know what do you need to own in this? Because here's what they were trying to teach me. Is they were trying to teach me that the blame game is never going to get me anywhere. Nobody blames their way into a better future. You can only take ownership of your stuff. You can't force anybody else to take ownership of their stuff. All you can do is say, okay, I'm going to own that. And when you begin to own that, you begin to take responsibility and you begin to grow. And the craziest thing happens is when we begin to own our stuff and we're genuine about it, we're not trying to manipulate anybody, but we're saying, you know what, that's my bad, I did that. It actually frees up the other person to begin to own their stuff too. Because they don't have to be on the defense anymore. They don't have to uh, constantly be fighting. They can let their guard down and go, you know what, you're right. I need to own some of that too. And by owning your stuff, it frees them to own their stuff. This is also true spiritually. As a pastor, one of my favorite things to hear people say and I'm going to get in some people's kitchens, it's about to get quiet in here, is um, <clears throat> I'm not being fed. Ooh, when I hear that. If you're not a church person, that's like <laughs> the classic, right? It's like, I'm not being fed spiritually. And so what I want to tell them is, oh, so what you're saying is, I refuse to take ownership of my, my faith. You know who else doesn't get fed? Infants. Yeah. 
They, can't, they don't get fed either. It's like, that, that's who struggles to get fed is infants. Can you imagine if you applied that, that same standard to the other arenas of your life? Like you're hanging out with your friends and one of your friends says, I am so hungry. Like I'm starving. And you're like, well, why? Well, because no one will feed me. I'd be like, we're not friends anymore. That's not, what? It's because you got to take ownership, right? You, you got to, yes, the church is here and we're going to be here for you and we're going to love on you. But our job is to provide resources and opportunities, right? Here, here's some stuff. Here's rooted. Here's some places to serve. Here's some places to, di- but your job is to take ownership of your faith, to open up that Bible on your own, to show up here on the weekends. That's you. That's your responsibility. See, I told you it was going to get awkward in here every service. Of course, this applies to other arenas of life, our work, marriage, raising kids, finances, our health, but um, I don't want to miss it. The passage is specifically talking about here at ministry is what do I need to own within the church? Every Christian needs to own something in the church. It is all of our responsibility. It is an all play. Everybody is involved. And I think some of us, um, we've seen people who have found their sweet spot. They're greeters, they're ushers, they love doing what they're doing, doing it for years. Others of us, we just, we're not sure where we're supposed to serve. And so we think, oh, you know, I just got to find that right spot and wait for that right opportunity. But if this passage is teaching us something, I think it's teaching us that you just begin to serve where you see a need. I don't think Stephen was thinking, you know what, that's crazy. God has gifted me to be a waiter, and that's what I've been waiting for. No, he goes on to do some incredible things, but he saw a need, and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fulfill that need. You'd be surprised if some of the people who serve around here, there's people who are directing traffic, picking up trashes in, uh, trash in between services, all this, and these are highly successful people. If you saw them in their, their business world, you would go, why are you picking up trash? And they would say, well, because I saw a need, and so I just wanted to meet that need. And the craziest thing happens is when we begin to just simply serve where we see a need, God will then direct us to our next steps. It's not oftentimes that God goes, here is your spot, and it's for you, and I can't wait, and boom, there you are. No, he goes, why don't you just start serve, we'll start developing your heart of service, and then we'll start maneuvering you as you, as you grow, as you mature, as you learn, we're going to take you to that spot. So I think um, conflict is about ownership. When someone doesn't own their responsibility, it leads to blame and blame to conflict. But the opposite is also true. When people begin to own their stuff, then conflict begins to be resolved. Um, Let me finish with this last verse. So the word of the God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, this was a surprising ending to me. Because I thought that the ending would be, I thought the ending would be, uh, the widows were fed, everybody was, was happy. Right? I thought that would be a pretty logical conclusion to this whole problem, and yet that's not at all what it says. What it says is the widows were fed, and the result was people came to Jesus. Even the priests, the very people who hated Jesus, ended up following Jesus, all because the widows were fed? How does that make any sense? And I think it's because the church, when it becomes whole, when everybody begins to own something and everybody plays a part, it begins to, to move forward. It begins to grow. It's kind of like an engine. An engine has <clears throat> tons of different parts in it, big parts, small parts, those who are, that are more visible and those that are less. But it has to have all the parts working in unison in order for it to move forward. There's no non-crucial parts. Church is the same way. Is there are no non-crucial parts. Yes, there are some that are more visible and some that are less and bigger and smaller and all those kinds of things, but... They all have to be working together. And so you might think, oh, you know what, what is, 
I don't know, greeting somebody, shaking somebody's hand at the front door. How is that going to do anything around here? Well, see, you don't know all the stories. I've heard stories of people who are driving by and their life is falling apart. They're having a meltdown. They're facing some circumstances that they don't know if they can make it through. And they're driving by this place and they go, I don't know, I'm not even sure if I believe in God, but maybe they have something for me there. So they get enough courage to walk in the front door and they see you smiling and shaking their hand and they go, maybe there's something here. Maybe I can find an answer here. Or maybe it's a mom who's out in the parking lot and she just heard that, you know what, this is a good place for kids and she wants her kids to, uh, to learn something and so she just, she just shows up. She gets them dressed and she hauls them down here and she fights for a parking spot. She has no idea where to go. She's trying to get them to who knows where and you see her and you go, hey, you look like you could use a little help. Your hands are full. Can I help you out? Let me show you to the children's building. In fact, I'm going to walk you over there. I want to introduce you to some people. I think you're going to have a great time here. See, she would have never come back unless that conversation happened. And you think of it as, oh, it's just so small. It's just a handshake. It's just a smile. It's just helping somebody. No, this, this very much could be the thing that transforms somebody's life. And it's only going to happen if everybody owns it. This week I heard some really devastating news about a friend of mine up here at another church and been kind of wrestling with it all week and it just reminded me that life can be really hard right sometimes you just you're just reminded life is hard christian or not it's hard sometimes it also reminded me that the world really needs the church like really needs the church and it really needs the church to function well because for some reason, God has chosen us to be the instrument of change in the world. He said all the hope and healing and salvation and restoration, all of that is going to come through my people, the church. They're going to be my hands and feet, and they're going to be the one that's going to be able to bring that into the world. I don't have a backup plan. This is it. This is, this is the way that I've chosen to do it. I think we have to own that responsibility. We have to own the fact that we are the ones who are going to bring that change into the world. They're going to bring that hope, that healing, that salvation and so I want to leave you with a challenge with two things. One, that you would pray a pretty uh, scary prayer this week. That you would ask God, God, where do, you want me to, where do you want me to play? What do you want me to own? What is it that you want me to do in my life and in the church and in this community? What is it that you want me to own? And here's the other thing. Just like these disciples who stepped up and said, where do you need me? I would challenge you to go and ask one of our ministries, where do you need me? Go to the welcome booth, go to one of the ministries and say, where do you need me? Where do you need me to play? I'm open. You want me to pick up trash? I can pick up trash. You want me to greet? I can greet. You want me to lead? I can lead. Just tell me where you need me. Because if we are going to be the people who are bringing this hope and this healing and this salvation into the world, it's going to take ownership on all of our parts. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you so much for course, for this relationship that we get to have with you, the fact that we get to know you and be known by you and loved, and yet we are also in the midst of, um, in a life that is full of pain and is full of suffering. It has so much joy, but it also has so much sorrow, and for some reason, you have chosen us, these very weak and broken people, to be the, the hope of the world, and so, Lord God, we, we want to own that. We want to own that privilege and that responsibility. We would pray that you would use us in some pretty profound ways to affect change in people's lives. And, and Lord God, we know that we cannot do it on our own, that it's only by the power of your Holy Spirit that we can, we can go and we can bring this, this hope and healing. 
And so, Lord, we pray that you would use us. Use us this week. Use us today. Help us to find that place of need and let us be able to fulfill it. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.